A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. I just want to start out today by reminding you that you and I were born for a time such as this. Now, that may seem like small comfort as you're paying four bucks a gallon to gas up your car or more, depending on where you are. The world seems teetering on the brink of perhaps even nuclear war. Shortages continue to mount. Political unrest spreads. Cultural rot. Yeah, it's all still there. But uh, rather than, you know, I'm not trying to depress you, right? I'm not trying to push you back into the corner. Oh, no, no, You should be feeling bad about everything that's going on around you. Uh, no, I, I remind you that you and I were born for a time like this simply because when things get difficult like this, as they do from time to time throughout human history, there is a need for individuals who treasure the truth more than they treasure their own comfort more than they treasure approval or, uh, you know, acceptance by all the people around them. And I'm going to qualify this with, it is my opinion that God uses such individuals to do mighty things at times when it seems that nothing good is possible. I believe we live in one of these times. I believe you are one of those individuals. So let's uh, roll up our sleeves. Stiffen our backbones a bit, and uh, and let's let's move ahead. We've, we have some exciting things ahead of us. We also have some pretty daunting things. My job here is not to convince you that I have the right view and only I can be trusted. But I know if if you're a person for whom the truth matters, you've got your work cut out for you. Not only do we have more information available to us right now than any humans have ever had throughout human history. But there is so much conflicting information, and, and I know this term is terribly overused. There is so much disinformation, misinformation, outright deceit, spin, and lies that's, that's intended to keep you from too closely recognizing the truth or even, even approaching it in some cases. So, yeah, this is, this is a tough time for anybody who really wants to, to be grounded in reality rather than just simply following the emotional tidal wave of whatever the crowd is is trying to surf on at the moment. So I won't tell you what to think, but I'm going to share with you some of the best resources and some of the best thinkers that I've encountered who I think give a pretty fair shake of what's going on. I'm not going to say everything they say is 100% true. I can't do that. I don't know if it is or not, but if they are approaching their, their writing or their, their speaking from a principled point of view rather than simply some agenda, you know, that uh, hooray for this side, hooray for that side. Then I, I spend my days seeking out and trying to find that information so that I can share it with you. Now, I have some help in this matter. I want to make sure that my sponsors get a mention here. HSLAmmo.com. Folks who live in the St. George, Utah area, if you had any idea the amount of good that this man has done and is doing in your community, well, you'd probably you'd probably have a day to celebrate with him and a parade at the very least. Spencer's probably blushing as I say this, but 
No, he's that good of a guy. Sewing and Quilting Center. Also, MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, and the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. These are all the sponsors I have who make this program possible. Let's dive in and talk a little bit about what's going on around us. Now, I know that right now we're kind of, we're being steered from one crisis into another. And folks, that's the story. <laughs> I mean, that's, this, is, this is where the real issue is. It was full COVID crisis. It was so much of a crisis that, my goodness, you know, the the president or the uh, prime minister in Canada was sending in shock troops in the form of the RCMP and others who, uh, you know, removed their names and their insignia to go in there and crush the trucker rebellion, which was uh, protesting against these insane and punitive lockdown measures that had to be implemented because we all know COVID is the worst crisis ever. And suddenly, poof, it's gone. But a new crisis has risen in its place, and this is the story. This is the big story of the day. It's the story of of this time right now. Governance by crisis. We're actually going to spend some time talking about this, and and, uh, I've got a very eye-opening commentary from Jordan Schachtel coming up in the next hour of the show. But I'm going to I'm going to focus on one aspect of the crisis that is currently being foisted on us. And before I go there, I, I have to I got to clarify this because I want people to understand this is not indifference. This is not, uh, you know, a cavalier attitude towards the fact, you know, Brian, people are dying right now in Ukraine. I understand that. And, and if you are concerned about that, you know, good for you. That That's. That's a fair thing to be concerned about. But I'm going to ask, are you also concerned about the people who are dying and who have been dying for weeks and months and even years on end, say, in uh, Yemen? How about Syria? None of those interested you? No? Why Why is this one so important? And this is not to minimize the, the death and destruction that's going on. My point is simply, there is a lot of it going on at any time, often due to territorial disputes, but our, our attention isn't hyper-focused on it like it's being focused right now. And when I, when I say our attention, I, it's not like, well, we choose where we're going to put our attention. We kind of do, but we also have an awful lot of help from the mass media. And I'm sorry, this includes even your favorite mass media like Fox News and others. The news cycle is dominated by crisis. And right now, that is being used to put people into this this fever pitch, as you're going to hear about in today's show, where they can't see what's going on because they're so hyper-focused on, well, are you with me or are you against me? And, and of course, everybody who disagrees, even in the slightest, or who isn't beating the drum as loudly as you're waving the flag as hard, is somehow suspect. Probably, you know, a Russian bot. Probably a Russian asset. And I would submit that there's a pretty tiny minority of people who are capable of seeing through that deception and recognizing that we're all being played. And the best thing you can do is to shut off the media. Stop consuming it. It's, I know it's tough. And especially, you know, for instance, we, we, have, uh, we have a loved one living in Europe right now. And so it's a little bit nerve-wracking for us, you know, thinking, okay, what, what can we do? You know, for, uh, for for staying in touch. But every so often, I'll, I'll come in and, and uh, my wife will have on the uh, EU news. You know, so there's, there's a, a European Union news channel in English. But the spin is as bad or worse than anything that's going on here. They're, they all seem to be 
on the same page with the same talking points. And, and here's the most important part, excluding much of the same information that could really give you some insights. Now, as far as this war in Ukraine, no one is denying that it's a horrible thing. However, people who pretend that they didn't see this coming, I'm sorry, that's they just weren't paying attention. There have been plenty of voices who warned what was coming there. It shouldn't have taken anyone by surprise. Peter Hitchens, he's the brother of uh, Christopher Hitchens, saw what was coming nearly 12 years ago, and he refuses to join what he calls this carnival of hypocrisy. I'm going to share a few excerpts of of his article. This was in the uh, Daily Mail in the U.K. He says, In the the long-ago summer of 2010, I found myself in the beautiful harbor of Sevastopol, surveying the rival fleets of Russia and Ukraine as they rode at anchor in the lovely Crimean sunshine. One great fortress was adorned with banners proclaiming glory to the Ukrainian Navy. Another frowning bastion across the water bore the words glory to the Russian Navy. In the streets of that elegant city, with its porticos and statues and monuments to repeated wars, sailors from the two fleets mingled on the pavements. Now, he says the Russians looked like Russians with their huge hats and Edwardian uniforms. The Ukrainians looked more like the U.S. Navy on shore leave. He says it was almost funny to see. And he says, I hoped at that time it would work out well. For the Ukrainians had begun to be silly. In a country crammed with Russians, they were trying to make Russian a second-class language. Russians who had lived there happily for decades were pressured to take Ukrainian citizenship and adopt Ukrainian versions of their Christian names. Their schools were promoting a national hero, Stepan Bandera, who Russians strongly disliked and regarded as a terrorist. And they were teaching history which often had an anti-Russian tinge. Quite a few people told me they felt put upon by these policies. Why couldn't they just be left alone? Now, he says, until that point, Ukraine had been a reasonably harmonious country in its 20-odd years of existence. But he says, after that visit, I saw big trouble coming both in the Crimea and in the Don Basin, where I also traveled that year. Now, we're going to come back to Peter Hitchens' commentary here about what he saw and why he saw this conflict that we see playing out today coming. But more importantly, why, because of what he saw, he will not join in this hypocrisy carnival. Stick around. You're going to want to hear some of his observations. And remember, he was warning about this quite some time ago. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I'm going to get right back to Peter Hitchens' commentary in just a moment. First off, a quick shout-out to to our friends at LifesavingFood.com. You know, you can save 45%. This is a huge, huge savings on ReadyWise food. And this is, here's one in particular. This is the ReadyWise 240-serving entree and breakfast package. This is two very large stackable buckets with 120 servings of entrees, 120 servings of breakfast, normally $578. Actually, $578.99. You could pick one up today for $329.99. That's a one-month supply for one person. 25-year shelf life. I know, it's like, Brian, stop tempting me, but 
here's some temptation for you. If you're getting preparedness minded, this would be something you'd be really wise to consider. Click the link I provide in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. That's lifesavingfood.com. This is a huge, huge savings. Better jump on it while it's still available. Back to uh, Peter Hitchens, who saw the conflict that's going on right now in Ukraine coming. Now, he talks about how he was traveling in Ukraine back in 2010, but he saw this trouble on its way. He says, far out among the abandoned slag heaps of the dying coal fields, coal fields rather, this is, uh, I believe he's talking about the Don Basin. He says, I found the decaying semi-deserted town of Gorlovka, now in the middle of an unofficial war zone where it's been since 2014. He said this town had been officially renamed Horlivka by Ukraine in its high-handed way, though hardly anybody I met there called it that. Gorlovka in those days still hosted the rather, rather pleasant Cafe Barnsley, the last echo of the Soviet days when Gorlovka had been twinned with Barnsley in a gesture of communist solidarity with Arthur Scargill's miners. He says, I remember that boiling hot, almost silent afternoon, enjoying a Russian beer there while listening to music from a Russian station on the radio. I wrote rather vaguely at the time that the people of Crimea and and Donbass were hoping for and expecting a Russian future. I thought that if Ukraine wanted to be a rigid ethnic nationalist state, then some sort of peaceful deal with its Russian minority was going to be needed. Little did I know what passions I had touched on. He says, I was amazed to find that I had done something wicked and subversive. The article was attacked as a dismaying lapse by my old friend Edward Lucas, a fine journalist with whom I'd spent happy times reporting the collapse of the Soviet Empire way back in the 1980s. Peter Hitchens says, I especially recall a joyous celebratory dinner with him and others in the decayed 1950s splendors of the Jalta Hotel on Wenceslas Square in, in the Prague on the freezing night when the communist regime finally died there. Now, he says, I oh, I replied to my rebuke, my friend's rebuke, by warning that the conventional wisdom is mistaken, that the open-mouthed, sycophantic coverage of such events as the Orange Revolution has done us no favors, and that the future in this part of the world is far from settled, and we should perhaps prepare for further turmoil rather than imagine we have opened a golden road of peace and prosperity forever. He says, I asked, are the Anglosphere nations right to treat Russia as a perpetual threat and pariah long after its global ambitions have collapsed and its military power has rusted away. Its regime is miserable, but then so is that of China, with which we seek good relations. He says, you see, I've been making this point for a very long time, but it never seems to do any good. In fact, I'm accused of being a Russian shill or even a traitor of parroting Russian propaganda or things of that kind. Now, these insults, he says, make little impact on me personally because I know they're not true, and I have, over the past 30 years, been insulted by experts of all kinds. It is normal if you do what I do. But he says such behavior makes it harder for the country to keep a level head. In the atmosphere of the last few days, he says, I half expect to be presented with a white feather on the street by a beautiful young woman because I refused to join in the war hysteria now gripping the country. And he says, and it is hysteria. I've heard a respected member of parliament calling for the deportation of all Russians from this country. All of them. I've heard crazy people calling for a no-fly zone in Ukraine. If they got their way, he says, it would mean a terrible and immediate European war. I suspect they do not even know what they're calling for. Can you all please call off this carnival of hypocrisy? Peter Hitchens says, I cannot join it. 
I know too much. I know that our policy of NATO expansion, which we had promised not to do, and which we knew infuriated Russians, played its part in bringing about this crisis. I know that Ukraine's current government, now treated as if it was almost holy, was brought into being by a mob putsch openly backed by the USA back in 2014. He says, I know that the much-admired President Zelensky in February 2021 closed down three opposition TV stations on the grounds of national security. They went dark that night. I know that the opposition politician, Viktor Medvedchuk, was put under house arrest last year on a charge of treason. Isn't this the sort of thing Putin does? He says, I know that Ukraine's army has used severe force against Russian citizens in the Don Basin since 2014. The Russians have done dreadful things there, too, but there are plenty of people who will tell you that. The point is that this is not a contest of saints versus sinners or of Mordor versus the Shire. He says, I find it awkward that when Britain and the USA rightly denounced Putin's illegal invasion of a sovereign country, they seem to have forgotten that we gave him the idea by doing this in Iraq in 2003. Unlike them, he says, I can claim truly, I can truly claim to have opposed both of these actions. I tire of being told that NATO is purely defensive as as an alliance when we know it bombed Serbia in 1999, incidentally killing civilians when Serbia had not attacked a NATO member. He says, I also don't recall Libya attacking a NATO member before that defensive alliance launched the air war on Tripoli, which also killed civilians, children included, and turned that country into a cauldron of chaos benefiting nobody. And he says, and then there's the other thing that sticks in my gullet. The countries of the West have egged Ukraine on into a confrontation with Russia, which has predictably ended in Putin's barbaric invasion. But while we stand and cheer at a safe distance, the Ukrainians are the ones who get shelled, bombed, besieged, and driven from their homes. And he asks, is this honorable? Does sentimental praise for their bravery make up for it? By the way, that reminds me of the the meme that's been making the rounds this last few days. And it's uh, I think it's a Babylon Bee headline. Something along the lines of people who for two years demanded that everything be shut down for a virus now are are screaming for for blood in in Ukraine. Hang on a second. I might as well get this right. If I'm going to share this with you, I might as well get the right one. Okay. This is. Nope. All right. Anyway, it's the Babylon Bee. And it points out the hypocrisy as well as anything could be pointed out. People who were too afraid to leave their homes for the last two years are now screaming for blood and courage, you know, from from the Ukrainians. Peter Hitchens ends with two quotations. The first is from American Civil War General William Tecumseh Sherman, who said, I am sick and tired of war. Its glory is all moonshine. It is only those who have neither fired a shot nor heard the shrieks and groans of the wounded who cry aloud for blood, for vengeance, for desolation. War is hell. The other, he says, is from the Benedictus in the Church of England's 1662 Book of Common Prayer, which asks God to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide our feet into the way of peace, which he says, I fervently pray, for I am not sure that anything else now will do any good. Now, for those of you experiencing a little bit of, whoa, wait a minute, that was Hitchens? Yes, Peter Hitchens, brother of Christopher Hitchens. I think both of them were atheists at one point. Christopher is now deceased, but uh, Peter apparently has become a Christian. So make of that what you will, but uh, 
I think his his reasons for not joining in that uh, that what he calls the carnival of hypocrisy are very sound. And it's not because, you know, well, he's just taking the Russian side here, though there are those who I'm sure would like to portray it that way. It's because he's looking at this with a little bit longer view than whatever his attention span is, you know. Uh, that unfortunately, that describes most of us these days. Well, what did they say? You know, I heard, I heard on the news, this is what's happening. When you start to understand a little bit of the history, the complicated history between Ukraine and Russia, it's very clear this, this is a manufactured crisis, which they were steered into. What's disturbing, though, is it was our leadership that helped steer them into it. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. All right, let's uh, let's jump into a slightly different topic here. I'm going to be talking more about, uh, you know, the COVID crisis or what's left of the COVID crisis. Seems to have abated now the Ukraine crisis has taken its place. But here's something totally different. And this is actually... This has been on my mind since someone sent me a, a video, two videos actually, in the last week of college students on university campuses dressed in black, uh, dressed like their Antifa co- counterparts, chanting profane, you know, chants, trying to shut down speakers who had been invited to speak at these campuses. And I mean, it's it's two-year-olds throwing a tantrum would stop what they were doing, look at it and go, guys, he's up there, man, you know. Take a chill pill for crying out loud. And and I guess if there's any good news that comes from this kind of behavior, which somehow seems to be rewarded by university administration, it's the fact that um, higher education seems to be swiftly marginalizing itself. I don't know how parents who sent their kids off to college only to have them locked in their dorm rooms and under, you know, the strictest COVID restrictions of all for the last couple of years could see that kind of a video and conclude, oh, yes, it's a good thing I'm sending my kid you know, off to school. And by the way, this I understand, you know, for some people, it's like, hey, Brian, you can't get a good job without a college education. In some instances, that might be true, but it's increasingly less true. In fact, Isaac Morehouse has a terrific article explaining how college degrees are actually working against many job seekers. No degree, he says, is the new degree. Here's what he says. This is an article published on the Foundation for Economic Education's website. Starts with a question. Would you rather hire someone who ran a marathon or who had a college degree? And Isaac says, I remember when I saw the question posed on LinkedIn. It got hundreds of responses, almost all of whom said they'd pick the marathoner. Well, it turns out the story most young people have been told about the value of degrees on the job, on the job market, rather, isn't true. And it's getting less true. Every day. He says, a few years ago, I talked to a business owner who turned down a candidate I passed along because he had a master's degree. Now, this business owner told him, well, he seems smart and he has some skill, but he's been in school too long. It will take me too much time to get those habits out of him. Plus, I found people with advanced degrees tend to be entitled and assume they're worth more than they are. Isaac Morehouse says the famous venture capital firm Andreessen Horowitz developed a framework for evaluating which entrepreneurs were most likely to succeed with their startups. You know, one of the strongest indicators was being a college dropout. 
the courage and out-of-the-box thinking needed to overcome social pressure and quit school was a bullish sign. Now, all of these stories have one takeaway in common, and that is a college degree doesn't do a good job of signaling employability. In fact, choosing not to get one can actually be a better signal. And no wonder. Employers routinely report that college grads lack basic skills they look for in new hires. He actually links to three different articles talking about this. In fact, less than 10% of employers think colleges do a good job of preparing students for the working world. Now, Isaac Morehouse says a lack of useful skills is only part of the problem. Grads are saddled with debt, often taught absurd ideas from professors disconnected from the real world, and encouraged to see themselves as victims. Add to that binge drinking and increasingly draconian policies around health and politically correct speech, and campuses have become a place to pick up bad habits and bad ideas. Now, employers want to know that you can create value. So, BA, communications on a resume, doesn't convey much, but you know what does? A good opt-out or drop-out story. He says, I've seen hundreds of people with no degree and no experience get jobs that said a bachelor's and two to three years of experience were required. And they won these jobs because they showed something more valuable than a few static bullets on a resume. They explained why they chose not to go to college and that they did an apprenticeship or an internship or self-guided study program or project instead. And you know what? Employers love it. They get excited. Instead of someone simply taking the path of least resistance and muddling through college because their parents paid for it, they see individuals willing to forge their own way, think clearly about costs and benefits, and take initiative. That's why college alternative programs often boast placement rates of 90% or better immediately upon graduation, while just 40% of university students have jobs within three months after graduation. Isaac Morehouse says, Young people who prioritize real-world experience, self-directed learning, and creating an interesting life for themselves are increasingly sought after over those who do the normal college thing. What began as a counter-signal for startup founders and high-tech jobs is spreading to more and more roles as hiring managers discover the best traits are often correlated or better correlated with opt-outs than the college-educated. The most dynamic companies need to see more than the same piece of paper that everyone else has. So he says it's not that college is too good for many young people, it's that more and more young people are too good for college. I know, for some people, that's going to be like, whoa, <laughs> how dare you suggest such a thing? And I'm not, I'm not trying to suggest that higher education is somehow a dishonorable you know, kind of profession. I know a lot of people who teach in higher education. But can we at least approach this from the possibility that perhaps the, 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 the standards or the mores are shifting that perhaps uh, there, there is something taking place here that is making that college degree less of the panacea than we've traditionally seen it to be. Someone once described uh, college degrees as badges of compliance. And that may sound really cynical. Okay, you're just showing I can jump through the hoops. I can you know, check all the boxes and you know, complete this task. But when you look at what higher education has become and... and I've been paying pretty close attention for about the last 30 years. There's no place on earth 
less free in terms of where you can speak your mind than college campuses, particularly here in America. Now, you may find an exception here and there, but we have taken it from the point where, oh, it's a politically, it's politically correct speech. You can only say these things and so forth um, to the point where you actually have violent activists physically assaulting people and threatening people and shouting down people, chanting so that they won't accidentally be exposed to, a, to another idea or something that contradicts their, their narrow little worldview. I mean, can anybody with a straight face say that, uh, oh, hey, that's actually a good development. That's a, that's a sign the kids are, they're, they're right on top of stuff. I think Marxism has definitely it's infiltrated our institutions of higher learning. And I don't just mean economic Marxism. I mean cultural Marxism. That's what political correctness rather really is. It's very dogmatic. Just ask the last conservative who was invited to come and speak on a college campus. There's going to be protests. And, you know, you look at how uh, the, the administrators of these, of these various universities have, have succumbed to the idea that we've got to lock down harder than anybody else to be effective against uh, COVID. And yet it didn't work. It's almost like, almost like the virus didn't care what human beings were writing on paper or the policies and emails that were being issued or all of the theater, the performatory uh, art that everybody was doing with the masking and separation. We got to lock you in your, in your dorm room and so forth. Yeah, none of that mattered. The virus continued to spread as it has spread until it became endemic. And now people are starting to, to build resistance to it. So it's kind of a tough call for parents. And I, I have kids who are college age. Now, thankfully, I feel like they're pretty well grounded. I know I'm trying not to break my arm, patting myself on the back. But truth be told, their mom had a lot to do with how well grounded my kids are. But I worry for parents who are like, but how can I, how can I expect to send my kid out there into the workforce ill-prepared? What if they don't have this degree? What if they don't have the, the magic key to get them through that door? Well, I won't spend a lot of time on this, but, you know, there are trade schools that teach perfectly useful skills. And, and don't take this wrong, but not everybody is cut out for academics. They're just not. Some people actually find great satisfaction and have immense talent in working with their hands. So the kid who can lay down a perfect welding bead, I promise you, that kid is never going to, to worry about, uh, you know, where's my, uh, where's my next paycheck going to come from? If that's a skill they take the time to be trained in and develop, they're going to do just fine. Learning how to do electronics or to, to do, uh, you know, electrical engineering or, or, for that matter, mechanicking. It takes a lot less time to go through the trade schools to learn a trade and to get out there and be a productive part of society. And in the meantime, looking at what academia is quickly becoming, I'm thinking these may be more honorable by the minute compared to uh, their academic alternatives. But that's only my opinion. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just want to give a quick shout-out here to SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com. They are one of my sponsors. They're located in St. George, Utah. It's a family-owned business. It's been in operation since 1984. And if you or anybody you know likes to run a thread through needle and to, to sew or create your own things, these are the folks you want to talk to. They have the, the latest and greatest sewing machines. By the way, sewing machines start at around $199. And from there, the, you, can, you can go the sky's the limit. When you get to the long arm, handy quilter, long arm quilting machines, I mean, there is some really amazing technology out there, embroidery machines. And there's a reason why more people count on Sewing and Quilting Center than any other place in southern Utah. It's because they can get competitive deals, and of course, this is the best part, the best service all the time. They install the machines, they train you how to use them, they will service them and fix them when they need it. They're awesome tools. And it's really important when you make a purchase like this that you have someone to call when you're trying to get your next amazing quilt finished. So I would recommend click on that link in the uh, show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. We're looking at sewingandquiltingcenter.com, located in St. George, Utah. Well, as nice as it is to see things getting back to a kind of normal, We can't pretend that this isn't being done for political expediency. In fact, I've got a great article here by David Waugh from the American Institute for Economic Research. Return to normal driven by politics, not science. This is, I'm sorry, not the science. (laughs) Sorry, Dr. Fauci, I didn't mean to take your name in vain. David Waugh says a few days ago, the Biden administration released an updated pandemic roadmap detailing its plans to combat COVID-19. The plan came out after President Biden's State of the Union address where he stated, thanks to the progress we've made this past year, COVID-19 need no longer control our lives. (laughs) Yes, the virus was controlling our lives. That's good. Okay, back to the article. The plan calls for a return to normalcy and represents an approach to the pandemic where individuals make decisions based on their personal risk tolerances rather than submitting to government mandates. For now, Lockdowns, school closures, and other draconian pandemic measures are out of the picture. Now, Waugh says in addition to the Biden administration's recent shift, the CDC updated its guidelines on masking. The agency's risk guidelines now include hospital burdens as opposed to solely focusing on local transmission. And the change in guidelines is significant. He says, under the old guidelines, the CDC recommended that individuals in nearly all counties across the U.S., should wear masks. But the new guidelines say that masking is not necessary in nearly half the U.S. counties. In fact, he shows you the before and after maps which highlight the stark difference between county-level masking recommendations under the old CDC guidelines and the new ones. And Waugh says this abrupt abrupt shift is curious. There is no new research and there's no significant drop in COVID-19 cases or deaths that would prompt this change. Even once influential left-wing public health activists and scientists pointed out the government's flip-flopping. Greg Gonsalves, a vocal proponent of the zero-COVID strategy, expressed outrage at the new White House approach, tweeting an image accusing the government of having blood on its hands. (laughs) 
Now, David Waugh says, look, the, the science has not changed. So why are the Biden administration and public health agencies pivoting on their approach to the virus? And one answer is that the decision is purely political. And now, thanks to the information in a leaked memorandum written by the Biden administration's polling and research team, Impact Research, that conclusion seems obvious. And yes, he does link to this. And in essence, it says, look, after two years that necessitated lockdowns and travel bans, school closures, mask mandates, and nearly a million deaths, nearly every American finally has the tools to protect themselves from this virus. Hint, we had that all along, but thanks, Impact uh, Research. It's time for Democrats to take credit for ending the COVID crisis phase of the COVID war, point to important victories like vaccine distribution and providing economic stability to Americans and fully enter the rebuilding phase that comes after any war. So they say before we lay out some strategic thoughts for Democrats positioning themselves on COVID-19 after nearly two years of the pandemic. Number one, declare the crisis phase of COVID over and push for feeling and acting more normal. Thanks to Democrats, we're nowhere near where we were two years or even one year ago. Democrats have tremendous opportunity to claim an incredible historic success. They vaccinated hundreds of millions of people, prevented the economy from going into freefall, kept small businesses from going under, and got people back to work safely. I'm sorry, that is what gaslighting looks like. If you were wondering, that is exactly what it looks like. That's what it sounds like. Because of President Biden and Democrats, we can safely return to life feeling much more normal, and they should claim that proudly. Second thing, recognize that people are worn out and feeling real harm from the years-long restrictions, and take their side. More Americans have personally moved out of crisis mode. Twice as many voters are now more concerned about COVID's effect on the economy than about someone in their family or someone they know becoming infected with the coronavirus. Two-thirds of parents and 80% of teachers say the pandemic caused learning loss and voters are overwhelmingly more worried about getting about learning loss than kids getting COVID. Six in 10 Americans describe themselves as worn out by the pandemic. The more we talk about the threat of COVID and onerously restrict people's lives because of it, the more we turn them against us and show them we're out of touch with their daily realities. Now, that's directly from the memo itself. And David Waugh says this memo articulates a major problem the political left faces with upcoming elections in November and offers solutions for Democrats to save face. President Biden's approval rating is falling. One factor that could be driving this drop is that Americans are no longer content with seemingly never-ending COVID restrictions. Therefore, per the memo, Democrats should take credit for ending the COVID crisis phase of the COVID war and push for feeling and acting more normal. Now, what's significant about the memo is its timing and the near-immediate response by the Biden administration and the CDC. In near lockstep, both followed the memo's recommendations. The Biden administration updated its COVID-19 plan. Biden's State of the Union address prevented a, presented rather a stark deviation from previous messaging. And the CDC's new guidelines relaxed masking recommendations for a significant portion of the country. Gone are Biden's doomsday messages from just two months ago when he told the unvaccinated, you're looking at a winter of severe illness and death for yourselves, your families, and the hospitals you may soon overwhelm. White House Chief Medical Advisor Anthony Fauci, who a little over a month ago stated, we're still we're still in the middle of a pandemic. Well, he's no longer doing TV interviews. Rumors are he's in the witness protection program. Hmm, go figure. In short order, the article says Biden administration and CDC changed their entire pandemic approach. 
David Waugh says, given that we saw no new research or COVID-19 data to instigate a policy shift, we can only speculate that the Biden administration's new approach is not related to the science. And that's not surprising. Although the leak in response to the memorandum may seem egregious, it's not without precedent. One of the only constants in the public policy response to the pandemic is the near nonstop politicization of public health. This is seen through the actions of Anthony Fauci and former NIH director Francis Collins, who conspired to smear the scientists behind the Great Barrington Declaration through the popular press because they dared question the efficacy of lockdowns. In addition to Fauci and Collins, the CDC consistently demonstrates it is influenced by partisan politics. Throughout the pandemic, the CDC spread misinformation on masking, spurred or spun medical studies rather, disparaged natural immunity, allowed teachers' unions to influence its school reopening guidance, and used deeply flawed studies to push an unconstitutional eviction moratorium. Trust in the CDC is dropping because Americans see it as a politicized agency. The memo and response by the Biden administration and the CDC appear damning. But David Waugh says none of this is new. The Biden administration and the CDC's apparent reliance on politics disguised as science only further discredit them. So he says, while a return to normal is welcome, if the driving force behind it is political polling and stakes for re-election, we should all pause and reflect on whether people should be making such monumental decisions about our lives. In the words of William Niskaken, let me try that again, Niskanen, a nation that expects the government to prevent churches from burning, to control the price of bread or gasoline, to secure every job, and to find some villain for every dramatic accident, risks an even larger loss of life and liberty. I'm really grateful for his breakdown of this, and I think it's, it's on target. It was politics that drove the lockdowns. It is politics that's driving the, the lifting of these lockdowns. Here's the tough part for you and me. We have to be wise enough not to be cowed into believing that, well, you know, I guess they know what's best. They only know what's best for their political fortunes. Those who seem to be calling the shots on these things. My advice is let's follow the lead of all these other Americans who finally said, I've had enough. Stood up and reclaimed control over their own lives. It turns out you and I are smart enough to make those decisions. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. This is where we gather to revel in wrong think on a daily basis. I'm glad you're part of my growing audience of wrong thinkers. I would encourage you, if you're so inclined, please subscribe to my show notes. I actually have a couple of gems that I include today that I will not be sharing on the air but uh, these are a couple of resources for wrong thinkers that I have found especially helpful as uh, we navigate uh, the latest crisis to come along. By the way, I have some great sponsors who make the show possible, including the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, LifesavingFood.com, MonticelloCollege.org, 
Sewing at quiltingcenter.com and hslammo.com. I'm not being reckless here, but I am going to throw caution to the wind, and I'm going to dive into a topic that uh, is going to make some people really, really uncomfortable. And it has nothing to do with uh, COVID, has nothing to do with Ukraine. I mean, there's this is a time when you can almost certainly set off the perpetually offended, but here's a truly controversial topic. Chastity is the key to happiness. It's an article I picked up off of American Thinker over the weekend, and it's by Jeffrey Folks. I want you to hear what he has to say here before you know we have any kind of freak out, okay? The word chastity has an oddly quaint sound, says Jeffrey Folks, like the idea of a fringed carriage or a white picket fence, and it's been mocked by a host of modernists from Remy de Goumont to uh, Havelock Ellis and Aldous Huxley. I only know who one of those guys are, but Pope John Paul II was right when he said, quite simply, that chastity is the sure way to happiness. And when he wrote that the only the chaste man and the chaste woman are capable of true love. Jeffrey Folk says that's the crucial thing about chastity. It is the path to meaningful life beyond anything others can know. It reflects a faithful and steadfast devotion to another person and the deepest appreciation of that person's nature as a treasured part of God's creation. The joy and happiness of true love are beyond anything to be found in the crude popular culture of our time. A cynical culture that makes a mockery of all ennobling values, but especially that of love. Examine the lyrics of a sampling of the most popular recent songs, from Olivia Rodrigo's Driver's License and Dua Lipa's Levitating to B.B. Rex's Comfortable and Eminem's Rap God. Jeffrey Folk says these songs are insane, often crude, and exceptionally self-absorbed. The only message I detect is the importance of getting it and the enjoyment of short-term wealth and fame. If these songs are representative of modern America culture, then that culture must be purposeless and vulgar. He says it's important to understand the reasons for the special hostility of modern writers toward chastity, a general term that applies to sexual restraint before marriage and fidelity within marriage. The idea of chastity is threatening to materialists because if one is a materialist, then physical pleasure occupies a central place in one's scheme of values. If man is just the product of a mindless system of evolution, there is nothing in his nature to prevent him from pursuing his physical instincts. Why restrict those desires if there is no divinity in human nature and no thought of an afterlife? At the core of modern thought, is the misguided idea that restraint of any kind, but especially sexual restraint, undermines the Faustian conception of man as a godlike figure in competition with God and endowed with unbounded power and choice, as Eminem has it, a rap god. The story of Faust's seduction by this demonic idea and of its destruction of the innocence around him has been repeated for hundreds of years, but modernists have ignored it, believing that the lessons of the past no longer apply. Jeffrey Folk says the the example of a chaste individual who renounces superficial pursuits and aspires to a higher sphere of activity is particularly unwelcome to modernists because it challenges their central tenet of belief that we live in a godless world with no life after death and consequently that we must accumulate as many physical goods or experiences as possible before death. There must be something especially galling about the example of a saintly life like that of John Paul II and that man's ability to speak with such conviction about the happiness of a chaste life, 
By his example, John Paul II powerfully refuted the selfish idea that life is about nothing more than personal gratification. And it's not just the modernists uh, re- that modernists resent those who are chaste. They are determined to silence them, attack them with words and regulations, and create a culture in which chastity has no role. In effect, they want chastity to be stamped out and replaced with a culture of, pro- of pornography, promiscuity, universal birth control, and abortion on demand. And they want to portray those who resist this culture as offensive prudes and fanatics. We live in a peculiar age in which morality has been turned on its head. Sexuality is the currency in the marketplace, and as many believe, the key to happiness. And those who refuse to accept this corrupt vision are marginalized and belittled. Now he says, above all, we live in a morally enslaved era in which the great wisdom of thinkers like John Paul II has been rendered irrelevant, at least outside of the church. Yet there exists an alternative to the demeaning popular culture in which young men act like players and young women dress and behave like prostitutes. Ava Max's popular 2019 song, Sweet But Psycho, is all of that, with a layer of crude violence to boot. That culture is not just offensive, it devalues life and is destructive of happiness. In 2020, there were over 100,000 deaths due to drug overdose and 45,000 suicides in America. If these lost souls had understood the true value of life and of their lives, they might have been saved. Jeffrey Folk says, The truly great men and women, most of them unknown to history, are those faithful conservatives who honor their marriage vows and who are wise enough to see that promiscuity destroys the hope of beauty and joy. Chastity, like all forms of self-discipline and restraint, is not only healthy, it's an adventurous journey toward the goal of purity and simplicity. It is the opposite of the Faustian idea, dramatized in Goethe's Faust, Part 1, Scene 4, that one can possess all the wealth and pleasure of the world, albeit at the price of eternal damnation. Popular culture depicts men and women in feverish competition to possess all that the world has to offer. But that sort of life always ends in harm to oneself and others. The fates of Jeffrey Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell and of those who associated with them demonstrate how destructive the Faustian idea can be. By the way, that's a great reference right there. Jeffrey Folk says what one can possess is a modest life of intense joy and happiness based on devotion to one's spouse and family and dedication to the happiness of others. Folk says our founders envisioned a nation of devout, righteous, hard-working citizens free of the tyranny of the political elite, whether in the form of European monarchy or of the homegrown ruling class. John Adams and James Madison, among others, recognized the close connection between morality and good government, and they created a system of checks and balances not just for theoretical reasons, but to prevent the very real possibility of takeover by an undemocratic and corrupt oligarchy. The reason for separation of powers was explicitly to safeguard against potential tyrants driven by a lust for power and supported by a corrupt political base. So it's no coincidence that the same political class that seeks to expand government power over ordinary Americans is also the most unchaste. The Kennedys and Bill Clinton are just a few of hundreds of prominent liberals who seem to believe they could possess the world at the expense of others. What happened at Chappaquiddick is symptomatic of liberal political culture. Jeffrey Folks says, 
Chastity is the key to happiness in America and anywhere else. A true marriage cannot exist without chastity, and promiscuity places one's physical and mental health at risk. A chaste and decent society is also the basis of political liberty. In the end, the practice of chastity reflects a conservative concern for life itself, concern for our own well-being, concern for others, and concern for the beautiful world in which we live. i got to recommend a book. If you can find a copy of it, J.D. Unwin's book, Sex and Civilization, or I'm sorry, Sex and Culture. This was published back in 1934. In fact, maybe I'll, I'll touch on this in the next uh, in the next segment, just briefly, just because the bottom line here is he studied 86 different civilizations, and we're talking everything from ancient to modern civilizations, including big ones and small ones, right down to South Sea Pacific Islands from the Sumerians, the Greeks, and so forth. And what J.D. Unwin found was that when they practiced what he called fidelity, here's what he called it, uh, prenuptial and postnuptial continence, meaning when, when they practiced strict sexual fidelity, that's when these societies ascended. That's when they took off. And when they had very loose sexual mores, that's when societies declined. And the kicker is, every society that allowed itself to be consumed with the pursuit of pleasure went into decline. I know, that had never happened to us, right? Certainly our greatest moments are just ahead, right? Excuse me, i got to go gas up the car and bail my kid out of jail for not wearing a mask at school or whatever. Okay. Point taken. We'll touch on this in the next segment. Stick around. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. All right, this is the hour that I am definitely pushing the envelope, probably making a few people uncomfortable, if you're one of them. My apologies, but some of this stuff just needs to be said. So I open up with this article by Jeffrey Folks about uh, chastity is the key to happiness. And I understand, you know, there there's nothing that's more of a hot-button issue for some people, particularly in uh, different areas of our culture, than uh, suggesting that, uh, wow, people really ought to control their sexual urges rather than just run rampant chasing them. So I want to just briefly bring to light a forgotten text that may be the definitive work on the rise and fall of civilizations. And it's a book called Sex and Culture, published by British anthropologist J.D. Unwin back in 1934. Now, he set out to test the idea put forth by Freud that civilization is born out of repressed sexuality. So Unwin studied 86 different societies, great and small, including the Anglo-Saxons, the Romans, the Greeks, the Sumerians, and the Moors. In addition to these historical giants, Unwin also studied dozens of smaller societies down to tiny South Sea islands. And this is the conclusion he came to in his research. Quote, In human records, there is no instance of a society retaining its energy after a complete new generation has inherited a tradition which does not insist on prenuptial and postnuptial continents. Okay, so I'm going to put this in everyday language. Societies flourish during those times when they practice strict sexual fidelity, and they decline when sexual mores are loose. 
Now, Unwin's data showed an inseparable link between a society's destiny and its willingness to exercise sexual restraint. But if you suggest that today, well, you know, people ought to control their sexual desires. You might as well be suggesting you ought to control your desire to breathe oxygen. Too many people are, you can't do that. It's impossible. I was born this way. Yet Unwin's data showed an inseparable link between a society's destiny and its willingness to exercise sexual restraint. Now, believe it or not, those findings came as a surprise to the researcher himself, mainly because he was making no religious judgment on his findings, saying, I offer no opinion about rightness or wrongness. He simply noted that societies that practice absolute monogamy, meaning no extramarital or premarital sex, and societies which discourage divorce tend to be the most vital economically, scientifically, and artistically. Now, there's some clarification that's necessary here, and it's, that we, it's important we don't mistake the control of our sexual passions for the destructive squelching of them. These societies that chose to regulate their sexual behavior simply channeled their desires in ways that provided greater benefit than simple pleasure-seeking. In fact, I have a great quote from Brian Fitzgerald about how this kind of monogamy serves to define the appropriate roles for men in society. Brian Fitzgerald said monogamous civilizations require men to choose either lifelong celibacy or the responsibilities of a husband, fidelity, breadwinning, and fatherhood. Most men choose to marry to their good fortune because married men tend to be healthier, happier, and more productive than bachelors. Those committed husbands create stable marriages which offer the greatest opportunity for raising healthy, productive children who can keep a society strong and growing. End quote. Now, that kind of commitment to a strict moral code can only occur in a more sophisticated society that takes its religious beliefs seriously. Now, by contrast, the more pagan or primitive cultures were those that had simpler beliefs and, in turn, practiced very little restraint on sexual expression. And, of course, the prospect of modern American society accepting the value of practicing sexual self-control, it's pretty small. We've become a culture that is increasingly obsessed with sexual behavior. And anything that even hints of resisting the urge to act on those desires is decried as being oppressive and harmful to society. But J.D. Unwin's research shows that historically the exact opposite has been true. I remember Dennis Prager once saying, The creation of Western civilization has been a terribly difficult and unique thing. It took a constant delaying of gratification and a, a rechanneling of natural instincts. And these disciplines have not always been well received. So to illustrate the dangers of tearing down a fence before you ascertain why it was built in the first place, all you have to do is look at what happened to our society since monogamy went out of style. I remember Sobran, uh, Joseph Sobran uh, summing up the fruits of the sexual revolution that began nearly 60 years ago when he wrote that that revolution has reached its dreadful fulfillment in our inner cities where uninhibited behavior has resulted in bastardy, crime, poverty, disease, and general disorder. In fact, he said, now we have to talk about safe sex, a phrase that didn't occur to us when sex really was safe because it was confined to marriage. So I guess the bottom line is this. The freer we feel to indulge our inner hedonist, 
the less stable our society is. Which makes sense, right? I mean, if you, if you think about it, if life is really about pleasure at any cost, who can be faulted for breaking vows or for abandoning family when they become inconvenient? All right, I've probably poked the tiger enough for one day, but that's... <laughs> this, is, uh, this is one of those topics that, uh, again, it may make you uncomfortable, but it's probably something worth considering. So I thank you for considering it. Whether you agree or not, I guess, is, is beside the point. All right. I'm going to shift gears now. I want to talk about what does the COVID crisis have to do with the Ukraine crisis? And the answer is both are perfect examples of how we're being steered from one crisis to the next, actually being governed by crisis. Jordan Schachtel, in his excellent uh, dossier substack, points out that because we are just being steered from one crisis into the next, Note that the very same people who are insisting that we give up our freedoms, that we lock it down, you know, close our businesses, mask, separate, all of these things, get vaccinated or lose your job. These are the same people screaming the loudest that we've got to do something to to help Ukraine. How's this for a title? Americans have no obligation to sacrifice for the war in Ukraine. Oh, yeah. Jordan Schachtel says Ukraine mania is the successor to COVID mania. No questions asked. He says in March of 2020, we were told it was an act of incredible selfishness to want to continue to simply live lives as live our lives as free human beings. COVID-19 was to be taken very seriously, so seriously, in fact, that the ruling class told us that not taking COVID seriously and adhering to the draconian edicts of politicians meant you were a bad citizen and likely complicit in the potential death of everyone's grandma. Now, this notion of collective sacrifice due to COVID became akin to gospel throughout the United States. Only a selfish, lunatic bioterrorist would have the audacity to question the government's COVID narrative, we were told. After all, the experts told us that the collective sacrifice was the only way to spare millions of lives, and we must listen to the experts in order to make our way through the crisis. Well, he says, the rest is history. Many Americans saw two years pass and millions of lives and livelihoods ruined before the government lifted its tyrannical boot off our necks. Today, we're said to be facing another crisis. Russia has invaded Ukraine, and in order to prove yourself a good citizen, you must be made to sacrifice for the war in Ukraine. The foreign policy experts in D.C. and Brussels have united to demand your conscription to the Ukraine narrative. Instead of being complicit in the death of everyone's grandma, Americans who challenge the war in the Ukraine narrative are labeled sympathizers to Russian President Vladimir Putin. And for the last week, he says, your humble correspondent has been openly discussing the merits of heavily financing and aiding the war in a Slavic struggle between two very similar neighbors. Now, we've got to hit the pause button here, but when we come back, I'll give you some of the responses that uh, Jordan Schachtel has been receiving anytime he questions whether or not uh, this crisis that we're being steered into is really something to which we should throw ourselves wholeheartedly and support the people who are urging us to uh, get behind them. It does kind of have a familiar ring. And I think his comparison to the COVID crisis is spot on. We'll be back right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I'm sharing with you a commentary from Jordan Schachtel. This is from his dossier Substack. If you haven't subscribed, you might want to consider. In fact, before I go any further, I'm going to take one quick moment here and just say, given how much disinformation comes our way from many of the mainstream media sources, Substack is one of those few platforms which does not censor. And the reason it doesn't censor is you don't see uh, ads popping up here and there. You don't see uh, basically sponsored content. So it's not like, well, the sponsors are going to pull their funding if you don't toe the line on Ukraine or on COVID or whatever else, you know, whatever the next crisis is going to be. These writers are supported primarily by their readers. So if you find value in what they're doing, then uh, you should probably consider, you know, becoming a subscriber. And I think you can do it for, you know, five bucks a month or something. I mean, it's it's very affordable, especially when you consider how uh, well-grounded many of these writers are in reality. And I think uh, Jordan Chactel is, is definitely one of them. So if you're going to turn off the media, consider putting some of your, you know, money towards supporting some of these writers who are speaking the truth in times where, it's not an easy thing to do. Case in point, remember how you were ostracized if you didn't wear a mask or you didn't go along with uh, getting uh, your vaccination or your boosters you know, over the last couple of years? Well, that crisis has now given way to the next crisis, which is Ukraine. And you're supposed to be behind the efforts to you know, finance or otherwise support the war effort between Ukraine and Russia. And if you don't, if you question that narrative you are going to be, in turn, questioned, much as people did about the grandma killers and, you know, these antisocial types who won't get their vaccine. In fact, he says, for the past week, your humble correspondent has been openly discussing the merits of heavily financing and aiding the war effort. effort. And he says, the schizophrenic reactions to my open questions bring me back to those days in March of 2020. So when Jordan Schachtel questions, he gets responses like, how many rubles are they paying you? Vlad and Trump approve of this message, maggot. (laughs) Treason! And he says, I get it. The Ukraine situation is, like COVID mania, an emotionally charged issue. And it's totally understandable and admirable to be sympathetic to the ongoing plight of Ukraine. But he says the Biden administration and its allies are quite clearly weaponizing this crisis to advance an agenda that departs far from the everyday interests of the American people. So he says, contrary to the propaganda being peddled by our ruling class, the war in Ukraine didn't start last week. He says, as I've detailed in the dossier, this spat started many, many years ago. The Russian invasion of Ukraine is just the latest event in a decades-long geopolitical tug-of-war between hyper-aggressive Western interests and energy-emboldened Russia rising and fading great powers, shadowy oligarchs, and so many other covert and overt participants. Moscow, he says, has certainly decided to weaponize this crisis, and they may end up leveraging the Ukraine situation to annex more land. But it's not nearly the one-sided fiasco the corporate press and Western ruling class is projecting the situation out to be. It's not so much a battle of good Ukraine versus evil Putin but two kleptocratic shades of gray with many innocents caught in the crosshairs. Yet actors with a heavy interest in this fight want to make sure that the narrative is protected at all costs. 
Jordan Schachtel reminds us the war in Ukraine is primarily a product of a turf war between governmental and ultra-powerful private-interested parties. It is certainly not worth fighting a war over, let alone $8 a gallon gasoline, which could result in unbelievable suffering on the home front, especially among our most vulnerable. Sure, he says, Americans should feel free to embrace and fight for the social and political causes that they choose to defend. But they can do that voluntarily. Our ruling class has now taken this fight far beyond asking us to support their pet project interests in Ukraine. They are now forcing us to have skin in this game. Americans are being told that they must sacrifice for Ukraine. For now, it comes both in the form of brutal sanctions and committing the U.S. to an escalation cycle that is recklessly increasing the chances of a major conflict breaking out. So how exactly does the average American benefit from sanctions against Russia and the increasing prospect for war with a great power? Only through sensational, hysterical, false narratives. Think Putin as the next Hitler. Can the regime connect the average farmer in Arkansas or the cattle rancher in Wyoming or the postal worker in Detroit to the war in Ukraine? He says, with a war-weary public, a politicized military, energy prices reaching record highs, and Americans still struggling from a government-imposed COVID crunch on the economy, the last thing the American people need is more top-down suppression of our lives and liberties. That is why Jordan Schachtel says Americans have no obligation to sacrifice for war in Ukraine. That's some pretty harsh truth, but it's truth. I think it's absolutely on target. In fact, I want to jump from here over to a commentary from Roger Kimball. Russian to judgment, the birth of a meme. And maybe you've noticed everything Russian is now suspect. So here's what he says. He says, I'm worried. This is Roger Kimball. He says, I'm worried about Sabrina. She's our teenage daughter's cat. No, she's not ill. Quite the opposite. She's full of fizz. Never happier than when chasing a ball of yarn about the room. Unless it's when she's lying on someone's lap, eyes almost closed, purring up a storm. Now, Roger Kimball says, I'm not, I should explain, a cat person. Indeed, I'm quite allergic to our feline friends, which is why our daughter, who desperately wanted a cat, went into full research mode and discovered a breed that was reputed to be hypoallergenic. Now, the good news is that the breed in question, while not really hypoallergenic, is noticeably less of a problem in that regard than many other breeds. But the bad news is that the breed is called Russian Blue. And given the sudden outcry against all things Russian these days, he says, I worry the anti-Putin police may suddenly decide to recall all the Russian Blues and return them to sender. Does that sound far-fetched? Well, he says, "Uh, perhaps it does. But is it more far-fetched than the news just in that the International Cat Federation has banned Russian cats from international competitions and even from being registered in its pedigree book? Condemning Russia, Putin's invasion rather of Ukraine as an unprecedented act of aggression. Spokesman for the organization declared on its website, we cannot just witness these atrocities and do nothing. Oh boy. Somebody has to do something. Let's ban the Russian cats. Now, Roger Kimball says, look, I'm happy to condemn Putin's invasion of Ukraine, too. But I do wish that someone would supply the virtuous folks at Federation International Feline with a dictionary and a brief history of the world. It behooves them to learn what the word unprecedented means and what a dismal record humanity has when it comes to treating neighbors with consideration. 
He says, I'd also like to supply an affidavit stipulating that Sabrina is utterly innocent of colluding with Vladimir Putin in his military advances against Ukraine. She's never met the Russian dictator and would not, I'm confident, like him if she did meet him. She's a most particular cat, particularly in her choice of friends. The trouble is, Vladimir Putin has just been nominated to be this month's Emmanuel Goldstein, the character in George Orwell's 1984 who furnishes the populace with the chief object for their daily two-minutes-hate ritual. Now, Putin himself is not always on hand for the cathartic moments, so there are, however, a lot of stand-ins recruited for the exercise. The soprano, Anna Netrebko, for example, has performed nearly 200 times at the Metropolitan Opera, but she will not be performing there this year because she has some nice words for the Russian dictator. Something similar happened to Valery Gurdjieff. He was supposed to be conducting the Vienna Philharmonic at Carnegie Hall, but his association with Putin put paid to that. So it's not just cats and musicians that are feeling the pinch. Even foodstuffs have been enlisted in the anti-Putin brigade. There's a growing demand to boycott Coca-Cola, for example. Why? Because the company refuses to shut down its business in Russia. Even things that just sound like the name Putin are shoved onto the index prohibit- prohibitorium. Prohibitorum, rather. This just in from the land of Justin Trudeau. Quebec diner drops poutine from the menu. The word, not the dish, to denounce Putin. I'm surprised Trudeau didn't think of that when he clamped down on the Canadian truckers last month. He froze their bank and social media accounts, confiscated their property, fined, indicted, and jailed the ringleaders. But Roger Kimball says, as far as I know, he neglected to outlaw calling French fries freedom fries. Something that anyone who was serious about squashing the Freedom Convoy would have seen to right off the bat. Then there's this bulletin. Visa and MasterCard, which account for 74% of payment transactions in Russia, have shut down the operation in Russia, as has PayPal. I guess all this is forcing the rat into a corner. What is it that proverbial, proverbial wisdom tells us about the behavior of cornered rats? And what's more important, declaring one's fine feelings or acting in a way that minimalizes or minimizes rather the chances of catastrophe. I got to bump the brakes here for a moment because we're up against our break. But are you starting to notice this trend too? Dumping out Russian vodka. We don't carry any Russian brands anymore. Better go check your fridge. Do you have any Russian salad dressing? No, you probably better get rid of that too. If you have Russian ammo, send it to me. I'll dispose of it for you. Honest Engine, I'll do it. (laughs) We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Want to give a quick hello to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Located in St. George, Utah. These are the folks you want to talk to if you are in the market for a home mortgage. Whether it's a VA loan or a traditional loan or a reverse mortgage, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage has the stability and the clout to help you get the loan you need and to do it without delay. Why is that important? Well, if you're listening to me anywhere within the state of Utah, you know that it's a pretty crazy real estate market right now. Huge influx of people moving in from other places. Demand for homes is very high. That makes it a very competitive market, and it means if if you see a home you like, you uh, better be ready to act then, because if you turn your back, it will be gone by the time you turn around. 
Contact Heather at 703-4522. That's area code 435-703-4522. If you're in St. George, you can stop by 619 South Bluff Street. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386, and Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. So I'm sharing this article from Roger Kimball about Russia to ju- Russian to judgment, the birth of a meme. And all the things that are being banned and questioned. Why is Coca-Cola still selling their product in Russia? I mean, the whole world is supposed to stop what they're doing and immediately unite against Goldstein. I'm sorry, against Russia. And there is a very Orwellian feel to this two minutes hate that is, is currently underway. Now, he says the point is that among the, the virtucratic elite discussed with all things Russian and a corresponding adulation of all things Ukrainian has been whipped up to a fever pitch. For instance, uh, he talks about, in this case, um, Roger Kimball says, he lives in Fairfield, deep blue Fairfield County, Connecticut, where people still drive around wearing two or three masks on and sport BLM bumper stickers to declare their virtue. At a bridge in one town, People regularly congregate to denounce this week's approved misfit, George W. Bush, Donald Trump, Brett Kavanaugh, or to celebrate the hero or the cause du jour, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Roe v. Wade, or just now, Ukraine. So driving by this morning, he says, I was amused to see the little throng gathering to wave their miniature Ukrainian flags and accost passerby with signs declaring their abomination of war, Russia, Putin, etc. It would have been cute if it were not so humorlessly in earnest. Roger Kimball says, I hope no one will construe what I've said as an endorsement of Vladimir Putin or his invasion of Ukraine. It's neither. Putin's a murderous thug, but he's also the president of an economically troubled but militarily powerful country. That combination was one reason that Donald Trump was, in his opinion, correct to say that it would be a good thing, not a bad thing, if the United States got on well with Russia. Now, some people thought that Trump was capitulating to Putin by acknowledging the fact that both the United States and Russia had legitimate interests and spheres of influence. And he says, I believe Trump effectively stood up to Putin in ways that Putin understood. One way was by making America energy independent, thus denying Russia some $74 million a day in oil sales to the United States. By shuttering the Keystone Pipeline and pursuing the Pied Piper's dream of green energy, Joe Biden paneled to the left, but played right into Putin's hand and helped to pay for the military action that Biden professes to deplore. Another way that Putin stood up to, or that Trump rather stood up to Putin was through his effective demonstration of resolve in Syria in 2018 when U.S. forces destroyed an armored column of Russian mercenaries. Now he says, I'm told that it was the largest loss of Russian mercenaries at the hands of U.S. forces since the 1919 invasion of Siberia to help the white Russians. Putin absorbed the lesson and backed off. He invaded no other country while Trump was president. With the ascension of Joe Biden and his green energy agenda, a new day had dawned for Putin, just as he had gobbled up Crimea when Obama was president, so now he felt emboldened to attack and peel off more of Ukraine. Now, of course, it's not easy to say exactly what's happening on the ground. At the moment, the public square is flooded with misinformation from three main sources, Russian media, American media, and the Ukrainian media. In a delightful, in a typically insightful column, rather, commentator Josh Hammer details the plethora of Russian disinformation and propaganda oozing out from the media's pores. But he also outlines the Ukrainian version of the same. 
Amid Putin's reckless revanchism, he writes, Ukraine's defiant president, Volodymyr Zelensky, has seized the opportunity to play a naturally sympathetic Western audience like a fiddle. How else to characterize the Ukrainian government's opportunistic analogizing of Russia's damaging of the Baba Yar Holocaust Memorial with the actual World War II-era genocide committed at Baba Yar? A genocide committed by German Nazis, that is, with no shortage of complicity from all-too-eager local Ukrainians. How else to describe the mysterious blue-checked Twitter account of At Ukraine, which blasts out mawkish videos highlighting the ubiquity of Western support for the besieged country? Indeed, the Ukrainian cause replaced John Lennon's Imagine as the apotheosis of liberal internationalist fantasizing. End quote. Now, Roger Kimball says, The situation, Hammer notes, is more complicated and more nuanced than the specious retrograde Russian imperialism versus enlightened Western liberal democracy dichotomy falsely proffered by a gullible Western press. For one thing, corrupt and authoritarian though Russia is, Ukraine is hardly a paragon of virtue or democracy. Indeed, the nation ranked as one of the absolute most corrupt nations in the world. In fact, uh, no enterprising investigative journalist is likely to uncover the story about the uh, neo-Nazi paramilitary units such as the Azov Battalion active in Ukraine. Ukraine, lest amnesiac Westerners forget, is also the country of Hunter Biden and Burisma. Ukrainian oligarch Viktor Pinchuk was for years a massive donor to the Clinton Foundation. And Zelensky himself, of course, was at the center of Donald Trump's first entirely bogus impeachment. It seems there's something fundamentally rotten about modern Ukraine that no enterprising investigative journalist has yet uncovered. But Roger Kimball says no enterprising investigative journalist is likely to uncover that story or at least have it published should he by some miracle uncover it until today's politically correct meme of Zelensky, Ukraine, good, Putin, Russia, bad dissipates. He says all our efforts now should be directed toward de-escalation. Russia, though weaker than Putin pretends, still controls nearly 6,000 nuclear weapons, more than any other country in the world. The United States, even so as an avid enthusiast of sustainable energy, as Elon Musk recognizes, needs to increase oil and gas output immediately. There is no indication that anyone in the Biden administration is about to heed that advice. On the contrary, all the important people there, uh, all the important people there are refusing to increase U.S. output of fossil fuels, even as they're quietly acquiescing to Russia's demands regarding Iran's nuclear ambitions. Roger Kimball says it's an extraordinary moment. But just as it's an ill wind that blows no one good, there may be some silver linings in this stormy Russian-Ukrainian drama. For one thing, it seems to have shaken much of Europe, Germany in particular, out of its cozy state of coma-like dependency under America's large but increasingly frayed security umbrella. German Chancellor Olaf Scholz recently announced new military support for Ukraine, as well as his determination to increase Germany's contribution to NATO from 1.4% of GDP to the long-mandated but long-ignored 2%. Roger Kimball says, I call it a silver lining, but who knows? All in all, it's about time that Europe stepped up to the plate and began paying for its own defense. It's what Trump demanded but was denied. Well, maybe now it will happen, or maybe NATO will be cashiered and Europe will look after itself under the dispensation of some other arrangement. After all, NATO was formed some 70 years ago in the aftermath of World War II. 
to provide a counterweight to the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union dissolved in 1991. What, apart from bureaucratic inertia, accounts for the persistence of NATO? But the larger point is this. The machinations of history, declared obsolete by some, have a way of surprising us. And the surprises, alas, are not always pleasant. This was intimated by one observer in a tweet who wrote, quote, As a German, I just want to get some things straight. The entire Western world wants us to build up a huge army, march through Poland, fight the Russians if needed. Just writing it all down so there's no misunderstanding in the future. And he suggests, Francis Fukuyama, call your office. If you haven't read Francis Fukuyama's The End of History, it's quite a book. Been a few years since I've cracked it open, but <laughs> crazy stuff. So this is, again, an article from Roger Kimball. I'll have it linked in the show notes. There are other articles that are likewise linked in today's show notes. One in particular that I hope you'll take a look at is uh, an article calling for accountability so that we don't err on the side of catastrophe again when it comes to public health. I know right now everybody's attention is on Ukraine, and and if, if that's where you feel like it's best served, that's great. Just understand that the ruling class, who is this close to facing some real accountability for the things that they did to us under the auspices of protecting us from COVID, they're using this as a smokescreen to get attention off them and their misdeeds and onto something else. I'm just begging you, don't fall for it. This is The Brian Hyde Show.